the Hollywood Trust podcast testimony series, sharing experiences of those affected by the Northern Ireland conflict and those people who have taken the decision to take positive steps for the future. Now here is your host, Eamon Becker. Hello and welcome once again. My name is Eamon Baker and today's interviewee is Maureen Wilkinson. So welcome Maureen. Thank you very much for agreeing to do this. I know we did it a little while ago in 2016, but here we are. It's great that it's been aired now. This podcast is funded by the Central Good Relations Fund, the Reconciliation Fund of the Department of Foreign Affairs, and co-funded by the Derry City and Strabane District Council and the Community Relations Council. You may know this. I live in Domain Avenue, mm-hmm. and I live not far from where Emmett was killed. You probably could have seen it. Uh, yeah. Um, and I, I would be aware of the, the tree where some people have hung Celtic scarves mm-hmm. and other memorabilia over and maybe flowers mm-hmm. and that seems to have all stopped now or uh, last time I looked it was a rather tattered maybe Celtic scarf there. Mm-hmm. But will you tell us, what's maybe I'm, I'm sensitive about this, you know, Work away, a tough story. What happened? What happened Emmett? That night. That night, Emmett was out working on his delivery pizza run. You know, nobody's actually 100% sure. But he got a phone call from one of his friends. They said there was a couple of young boys with guns running around the bog. And they were looking for a certain person who was a known drug dealer. Emmett went the nosy, as he does, because he was a nosy shite. What age was he, Emmett? Emmett was 23 when he died. And Just short of his 23rd birthday, actually. And tell us what your connection with him is. Emma's actually a distant family member's child who was taken into care because of the father Muller had problems. But because he was blood, my mother took him in. Your mother? Uh, my own mother took him in as, and decided to keep him rather than put him in care because nobody in the family has ever... So your mother reared him? My mother, well, with the help of my mother had a, had a drink problem. So with the help of the rest of the family, we all read him because I loved at the time I loved right beside her and I had a, a wee year myself near enough the same age. So Emma we went everywhere with me. Emma the me was more like a a son than a brother because mm. it was the same age as my own wee year. So if I was going to the beach for the day, I took him. I took him on holidays until he was sixteen. Me and my older sister, we would have took him, you know, between us. Mm. So he was kinda rare with the whole family. It was one of the things where the pack of wolves reared him. You know what I mean? Everybody read him. It was, a, it was a good young fella. There was never no bother with him. He had the normal everyday runs, young fellas do. And then he met a girl. She got pregnant. They set, he was settling down with her. They loved together. And as I say, that night he was out in his pizza's room. And he got a phone call to say that there was boys in the bog with guns. And they went for a nosy. And the boy with a gun fired a shot. Which must everybody. Just before Emmett arrived. And he cleared along with the rest of the gunmen. And is this down in the bog side? Was this it? happened in Longmore Road. It started in the bog, and when Emma got there, it was the Longmore Road, which is ironic because he lived in Chick Hollister at the time. They gave chase. Someone went up Blaze Lane after them. Someone went up the road. Emma was, was on the pizza van. And can you explain to me why they were giving chase to people who had guns? They recognised who these young fellows were. One of them actually took off his mask. So they recognised they were only Wayne's one was only 16 years of age. And then it was a grown man at that stage. Like, he was 23. He was tw- tw- just short of his 23rd birthday. He yeah. died in June. His birthday would have been July. He was three weeks later or something. So he gave chase and they met them. Do you know where Malin's shop would be now? I absolutely do, yeah. Besides St John's School? Yes. Um, just about 50 yards from where he was actually murdered. They caught them and had a confrontation. And there was a couple of shots fired. But nobody was hot. 
So they gave chase, and Emmett was the closest to the gunman. So they were giving chase now in that waste ground? Or the greenery? Yep. Uh, and beside Malin's shop? Yeah. And the boy put the gun under his arm like that and fired and hit Emmett. And Emmett fell where his hat and he never recovered consciousness. Because the bullet actually had his neck his aorta and landed on his spinal cord. So even if Emmett had survived uh, that ordeal, he would have been paralysed, probably from the neck down. Maybe in a way it was a blessing in Skeg. If he hadn't been so nosy that night, he would, he'd be still loving. To me, I'm a great believer in destiny. He was where he was supposed to be. I mean, his death was horrible. It was a horrible experience to get that someone coming to your door to say that your brother was shot. Where were you living? I was living in Westway. I was living in the corner of yourself and him. Yeah. It was actually my sister-in-law. He came to the door and she says, Emma was shot in this. What do you mean shot? Air gun, because there was a lot of air rifles around the time young folks mucking about in that. The last thing I was expecting somebody to be shot because of the ceasefire. Mm. Oh, it was a punishment shooting. You know what, what had happened? She said, I don't know, circumstances, mum and me, quick. So, I thought my brother had pulled up and her husband. But I'm no way over to see where he was. My brother got a phone to say he was taking away an ambulance. So we went straight to Elton Galvin. This was late at night, was it? This was about 12.30. I had just left my daughter to the bus stop in because she was going to Dublin to get the plane for her holidays. So I was just I'd come home, I had a cup of beer, just sitting chilled out and relaxed. So I went to my bed about 12ish, banged at the door. Everybody was confused. We got to the hospital, there was people outside, all Emma's friends, cops, everywhere. And I went to walk on the couch and a cop stopped me. And I rather abruptly says, didn't they get his fucking hands off me? I said, my brother was in there, he was shot, and the, he moved aside at one stage. I think the police knew you to that stage, but he was critical. So we went on to casually, met a nurse. She took us to the family room, and the minute she took me to the family room, I knew. I knew he was there, because they'd done the exact same with my niece. A few years earlier, she died of a meningitis. I said, can I see him? She says, no, he's actually in theatre. They're working on him. So we were with it there. The rest of the family had started to arrive at this stage. My mother and father and my other brothers and my sister was in And she had actually heard it. She was on her holidays. She was in Portugal. And her husband had phoned me. This is my mom's a crack. I just got a phone call. And I said, well, Barney, I'm, I'm in the dark as much as you. I don't know what the circumstances are. I know he's in theatre at the moment. Started explaining all that. They took us upstairs to another the theatres are. And then you went and Gavin, I don't know if you know where that is. Mm-hmm, I do. Yeah. And there's a wee family room there. So they took us in there and we were all sitting about and we were just thinking and a nurse came out, a male nurse came out to explain what was happening. I kind of had a fair idea. I said, this is not looking good. I'm saying nothing to nobody. And about 20 months later, a doctor came out and the minute he took his hat off, it's like that advertisement on TV. The minute he took his hat off, I said, I'm sorry. I don't know what happened. I blacked out. I don't know what happened. I didn't filter nothing. I just have no recollection. And the next recollection, I have is out on the corridor and the family mingling, deciding what we were going to do, where we, what, what everybody's roles were. My role was to phone my sister and tell her in, in Portugal. My mother was in butts, as you can imagine. The other brother and a, a female member of the family, sister-in-law or niece or something, I can't even remember, went to tell his girlfriend because she was heavily pregnant at the time. She had only six days to go to her. The baby was actually born. So it was a kind of a whole melee of people deciding what to do and where we were going to wake him and, and stuff like that, you know. So we all convened in my brother's house because he didn't have any young children at the time. 
you know. Where would that be? That was in Farm Park. He lived in Farm Park at the time. So we all convened down there and got together as a family to say that we were going to wake him in my sister's house, Bridget's house. She was in Portugal. I had her key anyway because I would look after, no, we'd look after each other's houses. Because his girlfriends hadn't want him waked in the house that they were living in. You know, at the time, because she couldn't go back to it. She, yeah. she just felt that she couldn't go in there. She never ever set foot back in the house after that either. We had to go afterwards and clean it all out for her. So we waked him on the sister's house. And she got on the flight, she couldn't get home to Wednesday morning. But they still hadn't released Emma's body anyway at that stage. Because because it was a murder. And because there was guns involved and all the rest of it. The, the couple of days passed in an absolute daze. Just trying to figure it all out. And it was like watching a film. That you were part of, that you didn't want to be part of. It was one of roles you wish you weren't cast in, but you were handed it. But I remember going up to the spot. I, I remember the inspector coming to Bridges' house and giving us the details. When I said, Can we go and lay flowers? He says, Oh, I certainly tell him such and such sent you and let you pass the cordon. We really passed the first cordon, but not the second one. And we went up and we took flowers up, and I didn't see the TV camera. I was unaware of anybody around me, but that night in the news, our fists, which I thought was disgusting, was all over the news when we went to put flowers at the spot. They actually let us up as close as they could to the spot where Raymond had died, which was, you know, the bus stop there, mm-hmm. just there, Raymond. Couple the new road on the just, left, yeah. Just there, that's as close as they would let us. They would let us get on the green and talk because they were still doing forensics, forensics stuff like that, you know. That grief was very, very raw for us at the time, I mean. It was still two hours after he was killed. There was nobody allowed near the scene. We thought we were going to go and have a private moment. Because yeah. we knew the shit had hit the fan. And there would be a whole news campaign and all. We didn't, that wasn't, that we could hide from that. We could stay behind closed doors. That was the only time we were going to be out in the public. All the name actual funeral. Mm. And they could have gave us that, that time. The grave, when you see your fist splashed all over the, the six o'clock news that night, and you in tears and totally emotional. It was nice. And I know how other families feel now when I see it on TV and I can't look at it. Because I think that's their moment. I don't want to see it. It's, we're trying to get everybody together and try to deal with the whole situation. No death is, is easy. I don't care how you die. But when somebody was murdered at the hands of a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, 18-year-old, it's damn hard to deal with. You know, and these boys were sent out that night. They should have known drug dealer. And then it happened to get in the way. And he was the victim. And it's even harder to bear. It was hard to bear. It's not so bad now for me personally. I don't know how the rest of them feel about it. Is there's still, there's still only one has been charged and done time. And that's the boy that revealed himself that night. I remember thinking, why are these boys able to walk around the town and live a normal life and, and have way, have jobs and, and be this and be that and be the other? And then I thought about it. If you've done something that wrong, your conscience is not clear to care who you are. Unless you're a psychopath or a sociopath or something. So these boys have to live with this for the rest of their lives. I can go to my bed at night and I can say goodnight to Emmett or whatever. These boys, the last thing they saw was our Emmett running for his life and getting shot. They have to live with it. They have to explain that to their children. And especially now with the internet being the way it is, all you do is put somebody's name on and a whole story comes up. So they have to explain this situation to their own children. Yeah. That's the only reason why that guy was convicted, because he took his mask off and he was identified. But I mean, his family were, were lovely towards us and we were just as nice, courteous towards them, because then it wasn't them that's done this. 
and they came over to us at the court and we were actually praised how dignified we were which is a hard thing to do to show dignity when you're in pain mm. you know what I mean? and these fam- this family did thank us for that yeah. no apology is big enough and but at least they tried and the person the, the, the person who was convicted mm-hmm. was not the shooter he wasn't the shooter no. he and was you, there. S- you said that the way the shot was fired was he, uh, the guy that actually fired the shot knew that Emmett was catching on him so Emmett's chasing? Emmett's chasing and the boy, this is what the police have told us the boy put the gun under his arm didn't even look around, just fired so he's firing a shot that isn't necessarily aimed to kill it wasn't aimed to kill but he, I mean if you have a gun in your hand and you fire it, no matter what direction you fire it on this is my philosophy Sure. if you have a weapon in your hand and you know it's loaded and it's cocked and you're fighting for your own life and you fire that gun or somebody else is going to die not you I mean my inclination would be if I had seen people with guns would be get a way out of it uh-huh. and you used the adjective nosy he was nosy uh, he was can you explain what you think his motivation was I don't think he realised the seriousness of the situation I don't think he th- thought the gun was real if I'm honest with you mm. I don't know Emmett's dad I never spoke a word after he was shot so I don't know but knowing Emmett I can only surmise that he thought this gun wasn't real and he was in no danger. But shots had already been fired. Shots had already been fired. So you must have known. But your blank shots are the same as. Do they? Is 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 real shots? Yeah. Maybe he was never known for his brains, Emmett. Yeah, I don't think he realised the seriousness of the situation. He would have acted maybe spontaneously or impetuously. He thought he was helping somebody else. He thought he was helping somebody who was going to potentially be shot that night. And was that person with Emmett? No, he had cleared. I don't know. I don't, I'm not 100 percent sure the the, the details there. Emmett. Yeah. And, or, and I didn't want to know. Yeah. And you yeah. said that the people who had the guns, you said four of them. There was four of them that night. There was actually CCTV footage of them running up past. If you look at the time, I don't know if you've seen it. There's four of them spotted on CCTV from Rathmore running up Blaze Lane. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. And one of them was on mask. That's the one who was convicted. Ah, he was convicted. But all he got was eight years, eight years for murder. Well, that's actually manslaughter. He pleaded guilty. That was cut to four years because automatically half tier. He had already served two years on remand, so all he served was two years after. That. And that's, I mean. And he's now out. Um, he's out now, and as far as I know, he's living a, a fairly, fairly decent life. People talk about anger as being part of the grieving process. Mm, definitely. I threw myself on the drama. I have to say that because before that I kind of had a bit of a lull and I didn't really care. You know, the part came along, came along and I, I was actually involved in a project at the time when Emma was, was, was killed. I just finished the project actually and it was about six months after by the time we started everything settled down again I thought I have to find myself something to do. I have to. And the only thing I was ever really good at was drama other than looking after my wings and and whatever, my own grand, my first grandchild was due at the time. So I sort of got myself on the drama, started speaking to a few people, got myself a wee role, got myself a bigger role, got myself a bigger role, and I have snowballed since then. And I, I, the main my drama is, was the making, because it was, in a way it was like therapy. It's a strange thing to say, but it was, the main it was like therapy. When I couldn't go and talk to somebody, I never would seek counselling, never did. So my counselling was, through the drama? Through the drama. And through stepping into roles? Stepping into roles, pretending to be somebody that I wasn't. Do you remember what your first roles were in that 
at that time. You said you got a small role and then you got a bigger role and then even bigger role. You said you were involved in a project at that time. I just had finished a project called Flick, which I played a hooker, a prostitute, I think. That's an Irene Malak. I was Irene Malak play. And after that, I got a phone call actually from Carmen McCafferty, offering me a part in Tully's. The first time we'd done Tully's, I've done Tully's since that again. And then from that, I got a couple of smaller roles. People had come and seen Tully's and thought, which they must have like what I'd done. But offered me a few other roles. I notice you're almost smiling now as you, uh, uh, maybe as you remember those roles. Because uh, they were, they were, were brilliant. They just came along at the right time. I mean, I'm a great believer in fit, as I said to you before. If you're in the right place at the right time. But for me, the drama was 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 the saving of me. It stopped me mind from having the anger over to these boys. Well, I couldn't be known about it anyway. I mean, if I met them, I should have cut a word and shouted at them, called them a murdering bastard. Mm. But I didn't want to do it. That's not me. That's the anger. That would have been my anger speaking. I would have rather got on the stage and called somebody a stupid bastard, but in context of the play. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that, 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 that was for Given me. the Republican credentials of the family, if I can put it like that, was there a pull within the family? And don't be naming any names, but was there some people say, we will get these people? Was there a desire for violence to be inflicted on the... Uh, there was initially. We have to get these boys, we have to get revenge. That's, way, that's old school. Certain members of the family says no. The police are involved here. This is a serious, serious situation. This is not a case of he was kneecapped for, for for doing drugs or he was stealing cars. This is a serious. It's out of our hands. So we left it to the police. Mm-hmm. And that's as simple as that. We never never spoke about it after that again. And in the regard, we were angry when they when they when they decided to drop the case. Made me sister and up that day to call rain. There's nothing we're gonna do. And I was furious. I'm, I'm absolutely furious, and that was only about four years ago. Remind me of when Emmett was was killed. Emmett's dead eight years now, coming in June. So it was 2008, uh-huh. June 2008. Has wee boy turns eight, has wee boy was born six days after he was murdered. So Emmett's never seen his wee boy, and his wee boy's never seen Emmett. But his wee boy knows all about him, and knows that the bad man shot him. And when he's older, that's up to his mommy to explain the full story to him. He looks very much like his daddy. It's so scary. He's still very much involved with him because my sister actually child minds him. She looks after him. When, when the mommy actually went back like, to work. Mm. Which, in a roundabout way, gave me a lot of incentive. Because I thought, if this week girl can deliver a baby without her partner, suffer the grief of losing her partner, lost her home because she couldn't go back, went back to school, got her nursing degree, and is now nursing, I thought, are you mad? He said, and wallow in self pity. And I thought, no, I'm not doing this. And that's another way I wanted to get back into my drama. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's a credit to herself. Mm-hmm. An absolute credit. And she's no angel, don't get me wrong. And she's with another guy now, and she's quite happy. And I wish her nothing but happiness in the world. As long as the wee boy always remains in our family, which is the case. And what is the wee boy's name? The wee boy's called Caden. Caden Emmett Shields. Bradley. He's a double bar, certainly. Uh, they weren't married, his parents were Emmett and... She's Bradley. Uh, yeah. And that's his, that's his name. And he's a lovely boy, he's a very well-mannered wee boy. Very polite wee boy. And he put you so much in mind of Emmett when Emmett was that age. Because I remember Emmett when he was born. Emmett was born a, a few weeks after I was married. So Emmett's been in my family. He's from day one. 
And this wee lad is very much part of your family now. Oh God, I. My sister, she keeps him, and then if his mommy's working night shift, Breeze will keep him over now. The Breeze is like a grand win she never had. You know what I mean? That's mm. it's just it's, it's helped her. That's her way. It was her way of dealing with her grief. Mm. You know what I mean? Everybody's dealt with it differently. Mm. You know what I mean? Some people have to. Some of my family members have started drinking and. Whatever. I wanted to show the family members didn't really accept Emma as a brawler either because they were well out of the house and married by the time Emma came along. But I had never seen, and I remember at the news conference, one of the, the reporters asked us about Emma um, about being a foster brother. And I stopped him and I said, Emma's not a foster brother. Emma is not a foster brother. Emma's our brother. He's our brother. He's been our brother. He has our blood. He's, even if he hadn't, he's our brother. We love him like a brother. He's a, don't ever mm. call him a foster brother. I notice you putting your hand to your chest, almost uh, like you're putting your hand to your heart. Uh, that's why I am a foster girl. Yeah. yeah. And that's what made it so hard at the time. It was just a way, and you see, it's just my own weird. And Claire? It's hard for me personally. Is that your Claire you're speaking about? No, Jennifer, the older kid. Older kid. The older kid. Jennifer's 30 now this year, and I would have turned 30 last year. So I haven't. There was only um, three years difference between them, so he was, he's always been in our family, you know what I mean? I mean, that's and there's times that, I mean, I've, I've even slapped him on the bum when I was wee, like I did with me over here. Get on there and don't do that again, or get up there and eat that dinner, or, you know, get off, he get on to get a bath. Because I would have kept him nights, you know, mm. my mother was drinking, whatever. And every Saturday, even as an adult, every Saturday without fail, I am just to go up to our house on Saturday morning, and he used to walk up with my pits on him. And I knew I cleaned the floors on Saturday, and I used to come with big bits up. And I knew I would show you get the fuck off my floors. What do you want me to do, levitate? I just get out and get them bits off. Every Saturday, without fail, I used to go up there. He mm. sounds like he was quick with it. What do you want me to do, levitate? Uh, it was, I mean, he was he was brilliant with his hands. Yeah. He was a pla- he was a brickie betrayed. He, he was a brickie betrayed. And he was at me for... Months and months, going, call at me build the wall, call at me build the wall, call at me build your wall. And I said, no, Emma, you're not building, you're not qualified yet. And so when the boy came to build the wall, Emma was right helping him mix the cement. And he was only about 16, 17, something like that at the time, you know. So I let him help the the brickie. He built my wall for me, my front one when I was getting it done. And I had the nerve to say to him, Emma, I haven't got the money for the bricks yet, I can't let you build the wall. I just said, no, you're not. When you're qualified, you can build the wall, knowing that I was saving the money to get the wall built. Mm. So he ended up, he helped, he helped the bricky to build the wall. You know, he'll give you the last penny, give the shirt off his back. That's it. Do you, you're a stranger. And that's another reason why he did what he did that night. It would help anybody out. That, that so he knew who was the target for these young men, uh, who are young folks who had gone, and he was looking to protect. Uh, that person. You see, the, these young boys were seen earlier in the month, a few weeks beforehand, and around the area. Now, a few of them are from the area, and the, the rest of the boys knew what, what they were involved in. So when they saw them that night, they, when they when they heard that night they were shooting, and they kind of knew who it was, and the moment these boys started speaking, they had a verbal altercation, you see, before that, they knew who it was, they recognised their voices, and they actually told them they way off at the Craig and you where they belong type of thing and then that's when the shit hit the fan then mm-hmm. so I'm assuming I mean in my own head I'm assuming these boys were told to go out they had an objective that night and they had to obtain that objective 
So for them, once they had to go out and do what they were told to do, or the, the consequences for themselves. And I don't think these boys realised themselves the impact of what they were doing. These boys trust us with these guns, and we're going to go out and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Bravado or macho? Oh, I stick my chest out and get the testosterone going, you know now. Not realising they have no clue. They haven't got an iota of a clue of the impact of what they've done that night. This is an episode of the Hollywell Trust Testimony Series or Hollywell Podcast where you can catch up on our on-demand service both on Apple Podcasts and at SoundCloud.com. You can catch up with episodes such as the Derek Murr Testimony. Uh, the fly was a week after the relief parade here in the city and Simon Mowbray, the conductor of the Churchill, stood up at the, before they played the first thing and says, this first tune we're going to play, we played it for the first time last Saturday at the Apprentice Boys Parade. It doesn't even cause a ripple. You know, it doesn't cause a security worries and all that was at the start. You know, how's it going to look? You know, bands coming and they crossing the guild hall, they, they, you know, with bass drums and uniforms and stuff. Just doesn't even materialize. The Hollywell Stew Special Number One. Extern have been working with children and young people for almost 40 years. This is actually our 39th year. And we have always been quite innovative and try to find interesting ways to engage young people. So we're trying to build peace by bringing children together from both sides of the community um, to go on a trip to Legoland. The project is called Learn More, Use Less and it is a guide to reducing your risk to everyday environmental toxins. The artwork then will be displayed throughout various points of our city for people still remaining in those abusive relationships and the very popular testimony interview with James King and Eamon O'Donnell. Another woman came by and said, you'll never be bored. Yeah. What, how, we are never bored. We are never bored. We never, never, never bored. Download and stream these episodes for free on our SoundCloud page. Just go to soundcloud.com and look for Hollywell Trust. Or on our Apple Podcast page, just look for Hollywell Trust. One of the things I remember at the time, um, 2008, was that, and I know the media can hype this up, but the reports in the media suggested that there could be a lot of trouble. And I suppose that was that some people, not necessarily the Murrow family or the uh, Wilkinsons, uh, that people would exact revenge, maybe Emmett's friends uh-huh. um, oh that but that was discussed as well yeah and uh, one or two had come and says listen we're not letting this go and it wasn't me personally dealt with but a member of the family did deal with and he says to them no the family doesn't want this yeah and the family made a perhaps a public statement oh i made a public statement saying that we don't want no 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 revenge for this yeah. you know what i mean this is in the hands of the police the police should deal with it and, and we actually got slid off that because being a Republican, you don't deal with the police, you know. So who did the slating? Certain things says, you know. By other Republicans. By other Republicans. Well, yeah. uh, you're you're so-called Republicans. You went, we have no choice. They fucking murdered the young fellow. The police were into as a murder case. We had no choice in the matter. Yeah. And the police even says themselves, Emma was an innocent man. Emma was doing nothing wrong. Yeah. Oh, them being those that night. Do you remember the funeral? At all, maybe. Oh, I remember it, surely to God. 
I remember coming over the new road because it was funny thing, and I'll tell you how you remember. There was a photographer, you know the trees, the burning terrace there, with Brady's is? Yeah. Okay, there's houses kind of higher up, there's trees up there. There was a photographer sitting up in the tree. And I thought, I hope you fall and break your neck. <laughs> if it's that desperate for you to get a picture. And what they actually done was, talk about getting it wrong. My daughter, she said, was pregnant as well as Emma's girlfriend. And now they took a photograph of my daughter because the girlfriend didn't go to the funeral. She was utterly distressed. She was just totally like, she couldn't go. Mm. She couldn't go. They took a photograph of my daughter, assuming that she was that Emma's girlfriend. Mm. And we saw it in the papers and I said, Do you ever think that you're, you're Petrina? You're Emma's girlfriend? Totally got it wrong. Mm. And I thought, seriously, right then, hiding up trees. And it made a comical that day. I actually smiled. And I actually said to my husband, I'll I'll eat you up there. I hope he falls and breaks his name. Yeah. If he's willing to climb a tree to get a photograph <laughs> at a funeral, you know what I mean? I was thinking if it was a gay event or if it was, you know, some... We were burying my brother and he was trying to get a photograph of the family in grief. Yeah. And I walked the whole way. I refused to get into the car. I walked the whole way. I don't remember walking the bottom half of the new road, but when I got there where he was shot, I remember breaking down. And I remember taking my... It was raining, but I remember taking my coat off. I thought I'm too warm, I'm going to pass out here. And, and I think my husband carried because I can't even remember. And I remember going down, because Emma's is buried just as you go into the cemetery there. It's the first grave as you go into the cemetery, just there, on the right hand side. We couldn't get near the grave. And I don't know how you're Because there were so many people. So, people so they had to sort of file the people back to let the family through. You know what I mean? And I thought, because the second thing happened to my brother, my other, I have an older brother died as well, you see, 30 years ago. He died in a house fire. And there was cameras and everything there, and because he was a he was a Republican as well. And I remember not being able to get near the grave, and it really frustrated me. So now, I will not go to the cemetery unless I'm, unless I'm a family member. Because I'm afraid because I get in somebody's way, and they may have shown disrespect to the family. People just wanted their luck, and I am getting buried. You know what I mean? They didn't take into consideration. Once they were all asked to move back, they moved back. Don't get me wrong, but it was I was just an awful. You know what I mean? And then we went went back to one of the bars for, and I said to, I said to Liam, my, my husband, I said I, I can't I, I can't be here. I need to go. I, I can't do this. I can't stand around and talk to people. I'm not small really talk. Fun. I I'm not one of these people that does small talk anyway. Man. Regardless of what the situation, but I just saw it that particular day. But it was probably because everything just had got to me, and I thought I'm home with him again because I hadn't slept for about four days previously. Didn't sleep the night he was murdered. Obviously, I went home that Tuesday, got Bridges house ready. I went home that night. I think I slept for about four hours, and I never slept again then really until the Saturday. All because the first night the body came on the Bridges, I sat up all night on the room. Me and my older brother, we sat up on it. You no, know, that was old tradition. That's what you don't, they don't do it now, but we did then. We sat up in the room. The next decent sleep I got was the Saturday. The Saturday night, I got slept for about 14 hours. Straight through to Sunday morning. And then I went out and got drunk on Sunday night. <laughs> As a way of relieving the, relieving mm. my own, my own, my own tension. My own. Now, do you ever go up there? Oh, I have drive past and I never drive past without looking at it. Yeah. I found it hard about the first year. I wouldn't look at it. It was like, you know, you're naked in my hands, stand the bed, I don't mind looking at them. You know what I mean? That's the way I kind of. Yeah. And then I opened up, I think it was his first anniversary, or his first birthday. I can't remember, I don't want to have had a selfie, that's a scarf you see in the tree, selfie scarf on it. 
with flowers, put flowers on it. This was the first year I didn't put flowers on it. I think I'm starting to sort of move it on, if you like. You know, it doesn't matter where I put the flowers. And I don't go visit the grave like that, because to me they're not there. Mm. I mean, they're just worm food, if you know what I mean. Emmett's always here. Mm. And on the photograph, I have that photograph up, up in the house. We all, I get photographs for all my own wings. My wings were particularly close to him, mm. as were Bridget's wings as well, you know. So they all have their own photograph. Emmett's not in the grave, he's not there where he was shot, it's not at the Galvin, he, he's, he's, he's here. And in your heart? Oh, put it out. Because you, th- you think to yourself, what would it be like now? What would it be doing now with his life? You know, would, he, would he be married? Would he have another wing? Would he go out and get drunk and have a fight with somebody and you have to start that out? Or would he get another year pregnant? And you know, all the things go through your head, you know what I mean? Mm. But I would like to think he would have settled down with this girl. He would get, get his life going the way he wanted it going, Brickie, because there was not a work here for Brickie at the time. That's why he was that's why he was delivering pizza. There was not a lot of work at the time, if you remember. Mm. So I'd like to think he, he was a good, upstanding mm. fella mm. that that was productive. You mentioned there that the court case, and you said it was in Coleraine. No, that, no, that was a, that was the the charges were being dropped, and one of them went, went to Coleraine. The actual murder case itself of the first part was up in Belfast, at Laganside Court, the main yeah. courthouse in Belfast. How was that? That was nerve wracking. It was nerve wracking. They had a room set aside for us as the family, and we sort of had a road worker system worked out by all of us. We all of them go up at one time because my sister was child mine at the time. My daughter was, you know, had just had her baby. So we sort of had a road system worked out where we all kind of looked after each other's wings and they all up and then they looked after our wings and we went up and. Well, big, big commitment from the family. Oh, They'd aye. Be aye. there every day. Aye. But mm. we couldn't do it. You couldn't do it every day. I mean, everybody needed wages. But the thing I found strange was when you were up there, the, the murder cases and the serious crime are held on the top floor. And you're walking the toilet and you see all these boys sitting and you think, I'm here amongst all these people who've done wrong to him. And I've done nothing wrong, but I'm here. And you felt as if you were thrust under this situation you've no control over. You know, I find that quite hard to come to because I don't like two things I don't want to do. If I don't want to do this today, but it's just naughty and I don't want to do it. If I don't want to do a role and a play, no, I don't want to do it. If I don't want to go to Welver's shop and I won't. I'll go somewhere, I'll go to Lego. I don't give a shit about else. But I found myself in that situation that I didn't want to be in. But I felt I had to be there for him. How did it pan out that? The, that was the, the guy and his girlfriend actually. She gave an alibi that night. They were found guilty. Of, they pleaded guilty. She got 12 months suspended, which we were disgusted at. We were absolutely disgusted because all she'd done in the court was laugh and joke and smile. And she'd be weighing herself. I thought you are disgusting as a human being. The fellow that your man meaning that, that was found guilty, he, he sat with his head down. And I thought at least he's shown a wee bit of remorse, if not remorse, at least he's shown respect and he's not turning around looking at us because he was sitting kind of in front of us and the the, mm-hmm. the box. But she was looking behind and she was this and that, and that made my blood boil. Has being convicted, did that offer any relief to you at all? Not really, if I'm honest. Didn't bring him back. Mm. People say it brings closure, but it doesn't really. Do you think the word closure is overused? Overused. Why? Widely overused. I want to get closure when I decide that I want closure. I'm not going to get closure from the rest of them that's been found guilty or not guilty. 
Mm-hmm. Or if one of them wants to die tomorrow in a car accident, that's not going to bring closure to me. What would bring closure to you? I don't know. If I'm honest, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I know I'm not angry anymore, but I can't forgive them for what they've done. Mm-hmm. I mean, people say I forgive them for this. No, you see it on TV. I can't forgive them because mm-hmm. they've taken away something that belonged to me in the sense of a brother mm-hmm. or son, whatever way you want to look at it. I love to took away the memories that I should have had with. And then was there another court case? You mentioned Coleraine. That was, um, I don't know why he was moved to Coleraine. It was one of the other guys was also charged. What was he charged with? He was charged with um, manslaughter as well, but there was no evidence on him. And that's why they decided to drop the charges. And that's in the public domain, so can his name be mentioned? I can't remember his name. He was one of the two brawlers, or two brawlers. He was one of them. Has file still open? The cops told us that, that if ever any evidence comes to light, which we both know that that's not going to happen. And I think that's one of the reasons that helped me stop being angry. That's the point of it worrying about something out of my control. But if I'm spending time being angry at these boys, that's time I've taken away from my own wings and the enjoyment of my own grip. Because when my first grandma came along, it was the happiest time for me. But that marred it. Yeah. Because Emma was murdered six weeks before my own grandchild was born, my first grandchild. And I thought, I can't do this. I'm going to tear myself apart. I have to. I mean, every single minute I give the Emmons is taken away from my grandmother. So you can't do the two. You started to let this one go. Started to let that go. Gradually. Uh, gradually, yeah. all wasn't it? What do you call this grandmother? Yeah. My oldest grandmother's called Emily. She'd be eight when I come to knock. Emily? Emily Boyd. And, and she's see, a wee darling. I see you smiling again. Oh. Yeah. I have. She has four children now, Jennifer. Claire has one. So them six ground means to me. They're my life. Mm. They're my life. And the drama. And the drama. Oh God, I couldn't do without the drama. So we can nice. see on your face now, you mentioned the grandchildren, you mentioned drama. There's a, uh, a transition from what, of course, is a harrowing story mm. about your brother, Emmett. Uh-huh. Um, so in the year of 2008, you moved into some drama projects mm-hmm. and it seems to, from what you're saying is your confidence grew and you took mm-hmm. bigger and bigger I would role. have been intimidated if I had been offered a role back then there was anything all around maybe one scene two scenes mm-hmm. and the last play I done there three weeks ago in the Washington Theatre I was in out of the 12 scenes I was in them. so that's how much my confidence has grown mm-hmm. and I mean it's scary getting up on stage I'm not a trained actor I've never I've never went to university I've never had an acting class in my life. I don't have a formal training whatsoever. How did you know this part of yourself that you could be an actor? I didn't. I, was, I discovered it purely accidental. How was that? It actually started a wee years ago. My mother and my sister were involved in a dispute in the Strand Cinema. And they were sacked. And there was a whole dispute going on. And Pat McKean, I don't know if you know Pat. I do know. Pat came along. God bless her. Yep. Also from Craigan. Yep. From Anastasia Gardens. Yeah. Cheers indeed. Pat came along and Pat says, look, would you mind if I wrote a play, a story first and then I changed the play? And because I was there supporting my family every night, protesting with them, she came along, she said, well, then you'd like to play yourselves. But my sister's, well, she's not shy. Well, I was quiet then as well. She's a lot quieter than me. And I, she says, no, I said, well, I'll reluctantly have we go with that. So it kind of... That's how it came about. And where did that where did the that play go on? That play went on in the playhouse, the old playhouse, as it was there, and then we took it to Dublin. And then we went a couple of different smaller venues around one of Antrim. Community type venues? Aye. Uh, yeah. And then 
Platt was in the process of writing another play, which was called Just Another Sunday, about uh, Bloody Sunday. Yeah, I've seen that as well. And she offered me a part in that as well, and that actually, we actually went to America with that. Mm-hmm. So you were in the, the Bloody Sunday play that Pat wrote? Pat wrote as well. Yeah. So um, we were all just escalated then from that. You know, yeah. there was a gap of about three years where I actually got, had done nothing, but I, was, I wasn't well at the time, mental health issues. And then a friend of mine said, phoned me, she says, Morning, have a wee small part here, would you fancy it? What and was that? That was The Thirteen Steps, it was with the, the workhouse. Uh, it was wrote by Patsy Durham. Yeah, he wrote the Tillage play as well. He wrote the Tillage play as well. And I came along and I was, somebody had dropped out and I had only three weeks to learn the part and I was totally shaking myself mm. because I had to go on stage again and I went on and I loved but it. But some, some part of you had agreed to do this, uh-huh. so there must have been an attraction to do it, is he, even while you were, as uh, you put it, oh shaking uh, yourself. Why did I put myself through this sort of, sort of attitude, you know, you know, when I did But I mean, acting is one of them things where if you do your first role, you either get the bug, or you'll say, no, it's not for me. Well, I got the bug the first time I done, and I wanted to do more, and then as my confidence grew, I want the bigger, bigger parts. And I never will go for an audition, I've never went for an audition. One audition before you started, I don't like auditioning. To me, it's like an interview. One of the things you said earlier about having a part is that it, it was a way of being another person. Mm-hmm. And it was, and you said, it doesn't sound strange to me mm-hmm. that there's a therapeutic benefit mm-hmm. to you being in that. When I'm given a role, I'll research the role. If I have no personal experience of it, then the role I played the hooker. I've researched. So you have no personal experience of it? I have no personal experience I'm not a hooker. <laughs> uh, I've never used one either. This isn't flick. <laughs> uh, this isn't yeah. flick. So uh, I would go and do a bit of research. How um, did you research that rule? I, I watched programs. There was actually a documentary, and I went and watched huts about uh, night walkers, what they were called. Yeah. There was a couple of stories on about um, women who who did prostitute themselves, but have now they only done it in necessity. So I would have watched them interviews on how yeah. why they prostitute themselves. You know, some did for the love of sex, some did because they have to know their way of feeding themselves or whatever. So I watched both sides of the. And I'll boost my character on that. But if I get a rule, say the rule I got, the factory rule, or can tell you, my, my mother and my granny were both factory girls. So I kind of boost my character on my granny. You know what I mean? Because so you're drawn on memories of your granny uh, and exactly. things she said exactly. and mannerisms. Yeah. So that's exactly what I do. The, the last play I don't play the cleaner. Well, I was a cleaner myself, not the Galvin. So I was able to draw, but I actually. Put, mem- put, back, put the character on somebody else that I once knew worked in the hospital with me. Yeah. So I used her as opposed to myself. So that's what I do each time. You know, I get a, I get a role. If I, get, if I haven't personal experience, I'll research it. The last and then I become that person. You know, you sort of yeah. put yourself into that person. Yeah. You know, even in rehearsal, I am that person. I'm Betty Boggs for that role, for that two hours rehearsal, and I won't drop that until I leave the rehearsal room. Yeah. Unless I'm getting a cup of coffee. <laughs> because I don't know if any box likes coffee or not. So I'll, I'll, I'll stay in character usually the whole time. I'll try it anyway. The last time I saw you performing was with the Jonathan Burgess script, where you're playing a mm-hmm. mother of a UDR man mm-hmm. who presumably has been killed by the IRA. And when I was watching you, I was wondering what it was like, given your Republican background, to be actually playing a mother who's lost her son to Republicans? When, when I was doing that role, I didn't 
the Republicans have never come in there. I was doing that role as a mother who's lost a son, which I have in, in Emmett. He, he was like a son to me, although yeah. he was a brother, he was like a son to me as a sister yeah. So I kind of drew on that side of it. And how do you do that? I went back to that night that he was that he was killed. So when you this, were playing the role, you transported yourself back to. Well, I actually had done it before. I actually went on the stage because I knew two weeks in advance I was doing that. So yeah. I kind of work on it. I couldn't go on just do it cold like that. Yeah. I kind of worked on it at home. How about how about I? Right, this is how I felt the night the Emmett was killed. Um, my heart was breaking and I felt as if my whole body was being dragged down and everything around me was black. You know, it didn't really matter who was there, you know. My favourite pop star would have been Donny Osmond and it would give me right arm to meet him. But Donny Osmond was standing there with the baller with one money know. So that you have to transport yourself into so you, I do that at home first and I've had lines, I obviously do the lines, but John and there was no lines, he wanted me to underplay the whole thing. And my, I usually am flamboyant in my hair, just my hand, so I had to pull everything right back and keep my hands down. If you mm. notice, my hands hardly moved. So I kind of kept everything small and slow. And then I was actually ironing. I remember Liam getting his trousers ready. They wear for the wake, for the wake house and then. And I was standing there in his trousers and I thought, I shouldn't be fucking doing this. So I transported myself back to that when I was yeah. doing that. But you were ironing. The uniform so of the dead UDR man. But to me, it wasn't a uniform. It was funeral wear. It was your Liam's treasure. Yeah. Yeah. And the funny thing is, I'm allergic to ironing boards, and I wasn't joking when I said that line because Liam does all iron in the house. But when it comes to anything Pacific, that needs specifically iron, sulky or anything treasure, I'll do that. Yeah. To transport myself on this, and I, I remember when I was standing in one of the scenes, it wasn't using my fist, so it didn't didn't really. I thought, if Liam could see me now standing here pretending there and he would have a queer laugh to himself. Because he knows I don't like Ireland. Mm. Well, he will see you because it's been filmed. Uh, exactly, he will. And, and I, never, I never told him I'd done that. I, I usually was doing the piece, but I didn't know what was standing near the Ireland board. Mm. I can't bit to see it, actually. I'll judge myself. Mm. Want to see it? I'll thought, you know, I didn't like that. Or, God, I'm not too bad in that way. <laughs> you know, if you think back on your, your drama career, what part give you most emotional satisfaction and uh, might be hard for you to come up with a part but no no that's quite easy actually my mother wouldn't have much respect for my acting because she thought she was better than me right that's my ma that's just the way she was my mother died of a brain tumor 2013 12 days after she died i was on stage a night me and e jim gallagher's play and i was playing the wife of a man who just died of a brain tumour in Kaiserlou and I had to deliver this monologue and during the monologue I broke down crying which I had never done you know not say it because I am, I'm not me, I'm, I'm somebody else and I, I, I never show me a real self so for me that was the most emotional part because I, I pulled, as I say, I always pull on personal experience but that was just a wee bit too close and I didn't realise it until this day but the audience loved it absolutely and the director, D, D, D Reid loved it D. Reid? D. Reid directed that. Uh, he, he loved it because he talked me through it the, the day before because he broke it down into four separate pieces for me because my husband's lying on his bed and he's just died of a brain tumour. Ten days before my mother died of a brain tumour. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine how hard that was. Was there part of you wanted to resist the role and, or did you use it as a way of moving forward? When I, when I first got the role my mother was, was ill and then used it as a brain tumour obviously and we nursed her at home. 
for me the rehearsals were like a break away from it. Yeah. Even though I was playing the wife of a man with a brain tumor, I was still a different person. I was playing a wife, not a daughter. If you understand what I yeah, mean. Yeah. But on the night, I just I remember seeing my ma lying down and the feelings that I had then came back and I put it on. I didn't mean they, but the two of them just overlapped because yeah. they were so close, so close together. Yeah. And that's the piece and, and part you're most proud of? In a sense, I, the part that, that gave me back my confidence to go and play major roles was the part of playing flick. Because Irene Malak trusted me with that role. She took a chance on me. She saw me acting before, but never, she didn't know how I was going to you know, portray it. So when she says to me, you played that exactly the way I wanted to play it, I thought, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm better than what I think. You know, maybe I should give myself a little bit of a leeway, stop it so sore myself. So then when Carmel phoned me, which was just a few weeks later, and offered me a part in, in television, I thought, well, Karen McCaffrey phones to help you party, don't refuse. Mm. I mean, she's phoned me for a reason. She must, she must, someone must have recommended me. And my dad, her husband, recommended me. Because I worked with Hamlin, Packy's way. Kevin, yeah. Kevin recommended me. Mm. So I was really, my confidence really started growing from there. Mm. From there on up. Next week on the Hollywell Testimony Series. John Porter works at Garden Outdoor Pursuit Centre. He talks about growing up in this city right in the mouth of the troubles and how outdoor pursuits was in some ways his salvation. For me it was the fact, it wasn't the fact of I didn't want to go riding. I got a bigger buzz out of climbing and putting myself out there. And then even if it was working with a group, the amount of times we'd have put a, a group on the bus to take them down for a weekend down camping and climbing called that and just getting them away and the banter and the crack. Missed an episode? Then why don't you search for all our podcasts on our SoundCloud.com page. Just search for Hollywell Trust. Or on Apple Podcasts, search for Hollywell Trust. Maureen, that was great. Thank you very much. And I would also like to thank our funders, the Central Good Relations Fund, the Reconciliation Fund of the Department of Foreign Affairs, Derry and Straban District Council, and the Community Relations Council. Thank you all. Thank you, Maureen. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages on Facebook, look for the Hollywell Trust, and on Twitter, it's at HollywellT.